Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Three quarters of our face-to-face communication with other people is given through nonverbal cues, the way we smile, hold our arms, raise or lower our voice, and so on. This body language is what helps us to make a good impression, build rapport, and collaborate and create with others. It's no wonder, then, that in an age where so much of our communication has moved to the digital realm, which is largely devoid of this body language, misunderstandings and miscommunications are so common. My guests would say that the key to improving our digital communication is a translate the body language of the physical world into our text, emails, and calls. Her name is Erica Dewan, and she's a leadership consultant and speaker, as well as the author of Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. Today on the show, Eric explains the way things like how long it takes to respond to a text, what punctuation you use in your messages, and how you sign up for emails can all affect the impression you make in your personal and professional relationships. We discuss the significance of exclamation points in our digital communication, using the example of how putting one after the word sure can convey a different meaning than using an ellipses or nothing at all. Erica then gives her take on if and when to use emojis. From there, we turn to how to avoid putting passive aggression into your messages and how to deal with receiving messages that feel laden with such. We then unpack the best way to sign up for emails, and then Erica explains how to choose the right communication channel, whether it's text, email, video, or phone for your communication, and the expectations as to how quickly you should respond to messages that are received on each respective medium. And we end our conversation with what to do when someone's digital communication style leaves you frustrated or confused. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash digital body language. Erica Dwan, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So you got a book out called Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. And this is all about how we communicate online. I'm sure everyone who's listening to this, this podcast right now has had an experience where their online communication, there's been some sort of miscommunication or they've been anxious about something or some sort of misunderstanding it's caused anger. What is it about digital communication that causes emotions like uncertainty, self-doubt, anger, et cetera? Well, research shows that roughly 60 to 80% of our face-to-face communication is our nonverbal body language, pacing, pauses, gestures, tone. In a digital world, what's happened is body language hasn't disappeared. It is transformed. We now infuse digital signals and cues. But in today's world, most of us are doing it blindly, accidentally, or just plain wrong. And that's what's creating so much miscommunication at work. So what are some real-world examples that you've encountered of the kinds of things that can happen as part of digital communication going wrong? Let's talk about personal stories to start. I'll give you an example. Laura and Dave had been going out for three years when they got into a fight exclusively by text message. Now, Laura was really frustrated. Finally, she tapped out and sent her boyfriend Dave a text saying, so are we through? And Dave responded, I guess so, dot, dot, dot. Now, Laura was devastated after this. She called in sick to work the next day. She grieved the loss of her relationship. She told some of her friends. And the next day, Dave appeared on her doorstep. And Laura was puffy-eyed. She answered the door. And Dave said, did you forget about our dinner that we planned a few days ago? And Laura said, I thought you said we were through. And Dave said, I thought we were through arguing, not as in you and me. This is just a perfect example to show that in today's digital world, what we say isn't always what we mean. But we also experience this all the time, whether it's ambiguous text messages from a boss saying, what does this mean, question mark, or get this done now with an exclamation point, or that weird 
confusion and formality. If someone has continuous back and forth emails to you that are very informal, but then all of a sudden they start using Dear Erica and best regards, you start to wonder what's going on. All right. So I think we're all familiar with the idea of body language and nonverbal cues that happen in face-to-face communication. There's eye contact, you cross your arms, you said earlier, like the cadence and the pace of, of the communication. How would you describe the parallel world of digital body language? I mean, is it an entirely different category or is it something that, I mean, can you translate physical body language to digital body language? So we all know what a handshake, a head nod, an eye roll, a smile really mean in our world of physical body language, but there are digital body language signals that translate. So let's talk about a few examples. First, trust. So in a traditional body language world, we show trust through keeping our palms open, maybe uncrossing our arms and legs, smiling. In a digital world, we may use language that's clear and direct with a firm subject line. We may uh, start a message with hope this helps, or I'm so excited to work with you. We may mirror the sender's use of emojis in informal punctuation. If they throw in an emoji, we may start to do it as well. Now let's share another example, excitement. In a world of traditional body language, we show excitement by speaking quickly, raising our voice, maybe tapping our fingers, uh, raising our eyebrows. In a digital world, we may use exclamation points or capitalization. We may prioritize a quick response time to a text. Sometimes we'll even send multiple messages in a row, a text, an email, and maybe even call. When it comes to urgency, in a world of traditional body language, we may raise our voice or speak quickly. In a world of digital body language, we may use multiple exclamation marks or all caps in a text. Okay, so let's let's dig into some of the stuff in the details of digital body language. Because as you said, like we 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 have basically been doing you know translating physical body language into digital body language, but no one's really talking about it. And everyone, I think everyone's like on different pages on what's appropriate or what one thing means. But I think after I don't know what, what are we th- coming on thirty years of email and digital communication, we're starting to set on some norms and you basically in this book try to make them explicit. So, you know, one way that we can convey digital body language is our use of punctuation marks. And an example that I think can, will we'll kind of show how a single punctuation mark can change the meaning of a word. Let's use the word sure. So let's talk about like a sure followed by a period. Like what, what does that convey? No. Well, we all know that in today's world, a period is not just a period anymore. It can mean something else entirely. So if we, if someone asks, you know, can you watch my dog for the night? And you reply, sure. If there's a period at the end of that text in that sure, some may think, do they really want to do this? Do they think this is a pain, but they'll do it, but they'll resent us the whole time. But if it was a sure with an exclamation point, you would think that might convey excitement or even eagerness. Now, if it was a sure with multiple periods and ellipses, dot, 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 uh, you may start to think, is that passive aggressiveness? Is someone going to resent me? And, And so in today's world, what we have to remember is that punctuation can mean different things. For some, an all caps message can mean excitement, it can mean urgency, or it can mean shouting. A period at the end of a text for some, especially digital natives, can feel like passive aggressiveness. And for others, it can just be good grammar. And even simple things like question marks, when you use one, it can feel like a simple question. But when you use four, it can sometimes feel accusatory. What is like ending a sentence without a punctuation mark? What does that convey? So if I just said, sure, 
nothing after that. Now, our punctuation is used differently depending on the channel we use. And different channels define the informality you can have. When it comes to texting and informal messaging, it's much more common to actually not use a period at the end of a statement and to keep it informal. And in many ways, that is the equivalent to a sure with a period at the end of an email. So research has shown that actually when you put a period at the end of a text, It can seem a bit passive aggressive or potentially signal frustration, but when you put it at the end of an email or a PowerPoint presentation, it's just thoughtful grammar. Okay, so yeah, yeah, that's that's another. Yeah, depending on the 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 mode of communication, the punctuation can mean something different. That's that can get complicated. Well, you mentioned exclamation points, and I've noticed this over the years that people have just been using exclamation points like out the wazoo. Like you can't have an email without you know having two or three exclamation points. So you mentioned earlier, like, I think we all think of exclamation points when you grew up and when you went to schools, like to convey urgency or something important, but now it means something different. What does that mean now? So when we were all face-to-face, we knew how to show a sense of excitement or urgency by furrowing our brows, tapping our fingers, speaking rapidly or smiling. Now in today's world, I like to say that exclamation points do a lot of that for us. And can convey everything from friendliness to excitement to sometimes even urgency. And in many cases, they have become so obligatory, especially in emails, that sometimes people feel the risk of coming off as brusque or cold if they don't use them. My general rule of thumb when it comes to exclamation points is to really understand what an exclamation point can mean. Will Schwabel, who's the author of the book Send, always says that the exclamation point is the quickest and easiest ways to kick things up a notch. So it can add velocity to your words. It can also be a sincerity marker. You know, instead of saying, I really like what you said, when you just say, I like what you said, when with two exclamation points, it cuts out the really because it shows that enthusiasm. Now, one of the things that I think is important about exclamation points is that the number that you use is also important. So if you use one exclamation point, that might mean basic enthusiasm. But if you use two or three, sometimes it can feel sarcastic. Sometimes it can feel potentially like shouting or urgency. And if you use, say, four or five, in certain cases, depending on the relationship, it can feel like hyper-excitement. And in other cases, it can feel like incredible anxiousness. Do you find that men are more hesitant to use the exclamation mark as a sign of excitement? Research shows that women feel compelled to use exclamation points to come across as friendly, warm, or or approachable, whereas men uh, tend to not use them as much in that way. They tend to use them more to signal urgency. And so what I think is interesting is similar to traditional body language differences across genders like voice pitch and up talking. What research shows is that women do feel more pressure to use exclamations. And my general lesson from that is This is a moment to be aware of some of those biases to encourage women to not feel so pressured to pepper their words with exclamation marks, but maybe also to encourage men to not be afraid to throw in that exclamation or even an emoji when it can actually deepen a digital relationship. So I think the takeaway here is to realize if you don't use exclamation points, then things like, sure, that's fine. Got it. Sounds good. Okay. It can sound cold, flat, and even angry. So unless you're actually trying to convey that you're angry or you're put out, uh, you should use exclamation points, even if you're a dude. 
to convey friendliness and sincerity. And I, I find that's actually useful to put exclamation points in text and emails where someone says, sure, exclamation point, or you got it, exclamation point. Just keeps things friendly. But you got to be judicious with them. Don't want to go crazy with it. You just need one exclamation point, not multiple. Too many in a row can just sound immature or a little too intense. All right, so you also mentioned emoticons or emojis. What's your approach to using them? Should we use them or should we not? Now, emojis have become an essential shortcut in showcasing what I'll describe as our facial expressions, happiness, sadness, anger, enthusiasm. And if you didn't think emojis were important, well, in 2015, the Oxford English Dictionary revealed the word of the year. It was the face with tears of joy emoji. So when it comes to emojis today, I'm actually a big fan of them, but I believe that we have to think before we emoji. Different people read into emojis differently, and it depends on two other questions. The first is, Who has more or less power here? And secondly, how much do you trust each other? Now, if you have less power in a relationship and it's a new digital relationship, you may want to err on the side of formality first, maybe not throw in emojis. If you are someone who has more power, you can actually use emojis to deepen trust and empathy with someone, especially if they may be younger. Now, the second level is trust levels. Is there high trust? Maybe using emojis can actually be very beneficial to showcase good intent in a short message by email or text. But if there's low trust, you may want to err on the side of formality. Now, research does show that there are also gender dynamics when it comes to emojis. In fact, one study showed that the overuse of emojis by women tended to signal incompetence. Whereas when men used emojis, they were more likely to signal friendliness. And if you didn't think emojis just mattered across genders, they also matter across cultures. In fact, the thumbs up emoji in in Western nations is a signal of agreement or approval. But in countries like Nigeria and Afghanistan, it's a vulgar or offensive emoji. So make sure you think before you emoji across cultures as well. Yeah, I've naturally, I was sort of emoji averse you know, decade ago when people first started using them, but I've started using them like in my tech communication with like friends and family. And I think it's, it's about being authentic to your own style, but what is powerful about emojis is they can be a shortcut to showcase that good intent, excitement, sadness, frustration, or happiness. And, and similar to the ways that we never used phrases like my bad or awesome, maybe five to 10 years ago, even in the workplace today, I'd actually argue, especially when there's a small power or trust gap, it's actually very beneficial to use emojis even at work. But again, you might want to wait until you kind of figure out the dynamics at that place. You know, if you're first coming in, maybe not lead with the emoji to your boss, but maybe after a few months you developed a relationship with them, then bring in the emojis. That's right. Think before you emoji and just simply know your audience. Using emojis with a team you work with daily can be incredibly beneficial, but maybe with a new client prospect, Air on the side of formality. Formality. All right. Let's talk about passive aggression in digital communication. I think a lot of times when you read a text, the person sending the text might think, well, this isn't, this is just neutral. But the person reading it is like, wow, it's really passive aggressive. And then also you can intentionally put passive aggression into a, a digital communication. How, how can you, how does that happen? Well, we've all received messages like per my last email, and we weren't sure whether they were just reminding us of something we discussed or they were saying, pay attention this time or one of my favorites, just to be sure we're on the same page. I never know whether that's you know a, a quick reminder of what we discussed or 
you know, you are not doing what I told and I don't want you to make a mistake again. Now, passive aggressiveness or assumptions that someone is passive aggressive have shot up, especially in digital messages because of the ambiguity and the loss of traditional body language. Now, when it comes to dealing with passive aggressive messages, I have three recommendations. The first is avoid responding to these passive aggressive messages when you're angry or frustrated. It can cause more mistakes if you are already emotionally hijacked. Do simple things like save your message as a draft and then send it when you're in a better mood. It can be really helpful. The second is stay in the place of reason. Sometimes people are just rushing or they're confused or they don't actually read the message as carefully as you would. So assume good intent and step into their shoes. Maybe ask yourself, why might they have made a mistake like this? I know a client who thought uh, their team member was being passive aggressive, but they were just typing a short response by text because they were about to take off on an airplane. So sometimes responding really with clarity. If someone says, why didn't you finish this question mark, question mark, you can respond with clarity saying, you know, here was the deadline Tuesday at 10 a.m. And imagine it's Monday. And then just simply asking, is there anything else that you need to make this project successful? When you're quickly empathetic, it will allow others to be more empathetic with their words also. And last but not least, try to replace imperatives like when someone writes, do this with conditional phrases, like, could you do this? Or start with a thoughtful message to recognize them, like, excellent job on this. Could you help us do this now? Or thank you so much for your hard work. Could we try to adjust or make these edits moving forward? And that can often try to soften up what may seem passive aggressive and enable everyone to get on the same page and see that good intent. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Okay, let's talk about emails. And one area where it can pay to think about your digital body language is with how you close an email. So we're talking about that last line, your valediction, or your signature. Uh, And you cited a really interesting study in the book that found that closing an email that was soliciting assistance with a thanks so much, exclamation point, made people twice as likely to offer help. So if the close of an email can have such an outsized effect on how it's received, what should people know in general about how to best end their emails? Now, every time we send or sign off an email, we're answering two other questions that guide the signals we send. As I mentioned earlier, they are who has more or less power? And secondly, how much do we trust each other? And answering those two questions very quickly will allow you to make sure that you sign off your messages in the way that best meets and engages that recipient. So for example, If you have more power in a situation, you may want to be thoughtful about signing off in a positive tone to build that chemistry with someone who has less power. Maybe a quick, thank you so much for your hard work, or I really appreciate it, and then sign off your message. If you're someone who has less power and you're trying to build a good repertoire, you may want to err on the side of formality here, ending with best or regards, ending with is there anything else that you need to show that engagement The second is trust levels. So if there's high trust, perhaps a team member, a colleague you've worked with for years, maybe you don't need to sweat it. And you can just get to the point uh, with many of my team members. I just end my messages with E. I don't write Erica. I don't write best Erica. I just get to the point quickly because I know they know I have their best intentions. And if there's low trust, again, err on the side of formality, be thoughtful. Maybe sometimes you may want to be a bit more formal 
whether it's best or regards or sincerely. What you can also do is mirror their digital body language and how they sign off their messages as well. So throughout the book, you've peppered it with these small sections with some quick tips on digital body language. And in one, you have common interpretations for our most used email signatures. So you say there, the first one is no signature. This is when you don't even put your name at the end of an email. That's the equivalent of awkwardly walking out of a room, leaving everyone wondering if you accidentally hit send with your elbow or if you're just ill-mannered. The next one is just your name, no send off. This should only be used when you're very familiar with your recipient or have been communicating back and forth in an email chain for more than three or four messages. Next one is best. This is a semi-formal, easy closing. The person wants you to think she's nice and professional. For new relationships, opt for the more formal best wishes or best regards. I'm a fan of the best regards. I use it a lot. Then you got regards. Somewhat outdated. This closing is more or less neutral, but it can come across to some as distant. Then you have love. This is inappropriate for the workplace. Even if it's your best friend at work, don't do it. And you have sincerely, the formal closing is commonly used by those on a lower rung of the corporate ladder, communicating with their boss's boss. If it's not, it's probably a PR person addressing a crisis. If you don't fit into these categories, using sincerely is too formal and in fact may make you seem insincere. All right, sincerely can make you look insincere. Then you got talk soon. I like this one for action-oriented emails or for emails that include some kind of prep work for an upcoming meeting or phone call. It's smart, casual, practical, and friendly, but not too friendly. And then finally, have thanks in advance. This has actually been shown to be the most effective email closing around. Thanks in advance. All right, so there you go. Some things to think through with your signature uh, in a, of an email. And I imagine the opening or greeting of an email is a similar thing, like where you want to think through things like the power dynamic and the trust level and things like that. Absolutely. You know, in many ways, I think there's parallels between our email greetings and our signatures. If we write dear at the top, we may often end with regards or best. And these really signal that semi-formal to formal start and closings. We want others to see us as nice and professional, almost like dressing up in a workplace, wearing a suit or formal attire. Now, If we send a message where we actually have no greeting at the top, maybe we use words like E, like I would uh, for my own team member, and then have no send off, this is a signal that we are very familiar with our recipient. It's like a communication back and forth, almost like a quick chat. I know individuals that will write their entire email in the subject line to me so that they're direct and to the point. And for us, it's actually a kinship. It showcases our familiarity with one another. And then there are certain other signals that can be more informal and in many cases be a bit more inappropriate for the workplace, but very effective in, say, family relationships, ending a message with love and starting a message with more an informal nickname for someone. So again, it goes back to signals of informality to formality and trust levels. All right, so something that you argue in the book is that reading carefully is the new listening. So how can things go awry when you don't read people's messages carefully and how can folks do better in this area? I'll never forget an experience. I sent a text message to a client saying, do you want to speak Wednesday or Thursday? And his response was, yes. Let me share two tips to make sure that you are thoughtful in how you read carefully, which is the new listening Number one, when you are reading messages, hold your horses. Less haste equals more speed. Don't rush through it so quickly that you may miss what someone needs from you, or you may read into something so specifically one line and end up reacting in a negative way. 
And secondly, always ask yourself when you are responding to a message, are you responding in the right medium? Are you using the right tone back? And are you giving your recipient exactly what they need, which really showcases that you listened? Right. So yeah, reading carefully is the new listening. Then as you said, like making sure that you write clearly and give everything that the person needs, that's, you call it the new empathy. Like you're thinking about what they need and trying to figure out, did I convey what I needed to convey in the way that's appropriate so they're going to get the message? That's right. If reading carefully is the new listening, writing clearly is the new empathy. And there are a couple things that we can do to really make sure we show that empathy in how we write. The first is to be tone deaf, not tone deaf. You know, if someone stays up all night working on a deliverable for us and they used to see us face to face when they gave us that deliverable the next day, we showed them a smile and exhale, a relief in our face. They felt appreciated. Now, if we just write a K period or we don't respond at all, they may not feel as valued or appreciated. Take the time to remember that our messages are visual in nature, show radical recognition. Remember that the THX period doesn't always showcase that recognition. Uh, Be thoughtful that people read emails like they read websites, bullet points, bold and underlined headings can be incredibly effective. Make sure you have a clear subject line, especially in emails that gets to the point. Is this an FYI? Is it a work request? And make sure that your messages are scannable. Uh, So attach screenshots. If someone needs to read something, make sure that you don't have vague questions, but you present options. Do you want us to do A, B, or C? And that can really allow individuals to answer back emails. And if it's not clear, to know when also to schedule a phone call or a video call. And as you said, you might think people might hear this. Well, I just don't have enough time to like read every message clearly and write, you know, everything clearly. But as you make the case, like, well, you're going to save yourself time because you're not going to have to deal with all the, well, I actually meant this and blah, blah, blah. You don't have to deal with that because you just took care of it from the get go. I think it's very simple. If we ask ourselves three questions, am I using the right tone? Is it clear what the recipient needs to do next? And Am I using the right medium? Should this be a phone call instead of an email? Those three questions can help us more quickly actually respond rather than ruminating around ambiguous messages. I think this is also a great point to talk about that in many cases, a phone call is worth a thousand emails. Oftentimes we resort to emails as the default, but there are many cases where nuance really has to happen by phone or by video call. I'm not promoting endless Zoom calls here. What I'm promoting is those quick five minute touch points that can clarify issues in those multiple reply all chains. Yeah, like, let's think about it. Like, there's so many different ways we can communicate. What factors should you consider if you're trying to figure out, okay, well, this is good for a text message. Well, this would be better for email or this would be better for a phone call. For me, like, phone calls are easy. It's like, if there's an email chain that goes beyond three or four, it's like, okay, we need to have a phone call because we'll, we'll get this resolved in two minutes. But like, what about the other, how do you decide, I'm gonna, this would be better for text or email? What I've learned is that there are three factors we have to consider when deciding which channel to use, and when to switch the channel. The first is the length, the you know the basis of the information. Length is easiest to manage. If it's really short, it may be just a quick text. If it's long, multiple paragraphs, maybe it's email, or maybe it's a discussion of PowerPoint slides on a video call. The second is complexity. Now, complexity is a bit harder to figure out, but generally, bigger, broader ideas, nuanced brainstormings, really involve video calls, phone calls. If it's 
maybe a quick yes or no. That's completely different. Low complex, opt for that quick IM or that email exchange. And last but not least, the third factor is familiarity. Now, familiarity refers not only to our relationship with the recipient of what we write, but also to the content of what we're saying. So ask yourself, who is your audience? If it's a close relationship, maybe that quick text, maybe a welcome disruption, but in a business relationship, maybe someone that you're trying to meet for the first time, emailing or working with their assistant to get on their calendar, maybe more appropriate. And you also want to consider content. Is it personal? Is it confidential? Making sure you're you're not texting things that really are confidential. Uh, and you're also being conscious of what should be a public group IM versus a one-on-one phone discussion. Another consideration around using different channels that you address in the book is knowing the best time to use them in order to get a response. And I thought this was really useful. You say this, when calls aren't scheduled in advance, place a call at the 20-minute and 50-minute mark of an hour when others are usually finished with other calls planned at the hour or 30-minute mark. Weekdays during normal work hours, especially mornings, are the best time to send an email that will get a reply and schedule a video call. So I thought that's helpful to keep in mind. And then the other thing to keep in mind with these different channels is your response time to messages. And you say each one carries different expectations. So what are those expectations and how can we best manage them? One of the things I learned while researching for my new book, Digital Body Language, is that different channels imply different response times. So for example, texting may seem much more time sensitive and urgent. If we don't hear back from someone uh, by text within maybe 30 minutes to three hours, we may start to wonder whether they got our text message. IMs may be much more appropriate within business hours to respond ASAP. Now, email may be much more appropriate within 24 hours, depending on the industry, sometimes three to six days. And video calls are much more based on scheduling, more priority dependent, and have more of that lag time in scheduling and longer response times. So you can see even there, each channel implies a different response time. What I do believe is important is that we have to remember that there are different response time expectations in different channels. So we want to avoid being that serial texter when information isn't really very important. I know I've been part of those text chains that just won't stop in the middle of the day. So sometimes I will blind the notifications of those text messages or I'll just respond and say, this is great. I'll get back to you on Sunday when we have more time. Uh, Or an email with my team, I will set response time expectations. For example, in subject lines, I'll write, 4-H, which means I need this in four hours, it's urgent, or 2-D, which means I need this in two days. So a team member knows that they shouldn't rush a response. They should really think about it before responding. How do you avoid setting overly high expectations with your communications? So like, let's say you decide I'm going to respond quickly. People might come to expect like that's what's going to happen all the time. And then like if you don't do it, they're like, well, something's wrong. Like they didn't. So how do you, how do you manage expectations with digital communication? Well, we've all been there when we've dealt with slow or no responses from someone else, and we wonder what's going on, if we did something wrong, and then finally, we usually follow up and they say, oh, I just missed your message. Now, when it comes to our fast-paced, real-time texting, emailing, Zoom calling world, 
I believe that we all need to practice the art of patient responses. Remember when it was completely okay to respond to a voicemail within a week? Now, if someone doesn't hear back from me within 48 hours, I think they often assume something's wrong or they don't jump in on a Zoom call within one second. We think they're on mute. I have a few recommendations here that are, I think are really important. If you're waiting for a response from someone else and you haven't heard back from them, Don't jump to conclusions unless it's really critical that they reply ASAP. Remember that people have a lot on their plates. If you follow up, say, once or twice, make sure to switch to a different medium as well. Maybe opt for a phone call or a text message if it's really important. And if you're on the other side, if you need to get back to someone, but you get hundreds of messages a day, here's my general recommendation. The first is if you can answer within 60 seconds, just respond immediately. It can actually be very helpful. Secondly, if it is urgent, but you can't respond immediately, respond and say, I'm on it. I'll get back to you tonight, or I'm working on it, or make an appointment with yourself on your calendar to get back to it. And for things that lack urgency, don't stress. You know, even if it's time blocking to catch up, I think that's totally fine. I know people that have auto responders on their emails. So they set expectations with others. And with your own team, it can be helpful to set some expectations on this as well, that if they don't hear back from you by email, it can be simply because you're in video calls all day. And that it might be helpful to say, send a quick IM or a text if something's urgent. The, the autoresponder thing is interesting because I don't like for me personally, I don't mind when I get an autoresponder when someone's on vacation. But when I get one of those autoresponders, because uh, I've tried this before, but I stopped doing it because I didn't like it. But like when I get those autoresponders from people, someone saying, well, hey, only answer emails between this and this time. Sort of that rubs me the wrong way. That's why I stopped doing it. <laughs> but like, I'd rather just get someone like, you did this to me. I sent you, you know, the questions we'd be discussing and you just, you sent a quick Thanks so much. Appreciate it. It's like, okay, she got it. Like it wasn't like a read receipt. I'd rather have that be like, hey, I can't answer this right away. I'll get back to you in a week. I'd rather get that than the autoresponder saying, I only answer emails at 10 o'clock at night and you'll get it. Absolutely. I mean, I I think that that quick response back saying I'm on it, even if you can't answer the question is often very effective. And in certain cases, speed can matter more than substance in our digital messages, especially with those that we're building new relationships with. But at the same time, I think for those that are getting hundreds of messages a day and don't want to insult others by not responding altogether, sometimes those autoresponders can be helpful to say, if you want to book me to speak, email this person. Or if you want to uh, schedule a call with me, use my Calendly link. So I actually like sometimes the autoresponder where it's not just vague, but it actually has a way for me to take action, even if they don't respond in a personal way. I like that. I like that specific action order. I like that. So what do you do if you're having a lot of confusion, anxiety with someone's digital communication style? Like, should you Should you say something? And if so, how do you do so in a non-awkward way? Now, the first thing to ask yourself is, are you using the right medium? Is this person maybe not so great by email, but is perfect with a quick five-minute phone call discussion? Is this someone that hates one more reply-all email and would actually be much more clear and to the point within a Slack message exchange? Actually, assessing the recipient's digital body language style, not just your own style, but how they like to connect best can help you often reduce your own anxiety and get exactly what you need from the other person. Secondly, 
If you need to navigate that ambiguous message or those confusing messages from others and you feel it's a bit awkward, I really recommend to just respond with clarity, asking clarifying questions like, can you share what you need from me? Or when do you need this by? will reduce a lot of that ambiguity when someone says, can you get this done? Uh, and if you're not sure about something, ask for more details, give people options, even have a quick framework in your email of the who, what, when, so that they can actually remind themselves that maybe they should be more clear in their messages. These are simple things that can really avoid anxiety. But at the same time, Individuals sometimes may not be as good as you in digital body language. So remember when to simply pick up the phone to reduce a lot of that written communication confusion. Well, Erica, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? You can check out my new book, Digital Body Language, available everywhere, Amazon, Bards and Nobles, even Audible. And you can learn more about me at ericadewan.com, as well as the book's website at ericadewan.com slash digital body language. All right, Erica Dewan, thanks so much for time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today was Erica Dewan. She's the author of the book, Digital Body Language. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about her work at her website, ericadewan.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash digitalbodylanguage, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free one trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that, thanks so much. Please consider sharing the show with a friend friend or family member, you think we'd something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.